Who's got something? Questions, Marjorie? Go ahead and wait if you would for a mic. James, if you don't mind. So we can try to put the Q&A online too. A lot of people can't be here. We don't have childcare, but they tell me they watch the videos and then they listen to the discussion <laughs> afterwards. Thank you, Martin. Uh, we'll come back to you, Marjorie. <laughs> you hang on to it. Okay. So all of these things are yet to come. Yes. Because I had always heard that Chernobyl was Wormwood. So, um, you know, again, it's really popular for us to read current events back into prophecy. And people have honestly done that for hundreds of years. Uh, the early Christians, for example, the Thessalonians specifically believed Nero was the Antichrist. And the reason the Apostle Paul is writing First and Second Thessalonians to put them at ease. You haven't been left behind. You're in tribulation, but you're not in the tribulation. Uh, there was, um, you know, I, I, I went back years ago uh, as I started to preach. I'd heard it. There's a guy named J. Frank Norris. I don't know if you've ever heard the name J. Frank Norris. But he was um, one of the great defenders of the faith in the early 20th century to mid-20th century at a time when liberal theology was starting to sweep Christianity in the Americas. And uh, he would have been very um, elderly at the time, but I just was so intrigued. It was when they were first starting to record messages, and it probably in the 1940s. And it was an amazing message to hear J. Frank Norris in the 1940s, Israel had just become a nation. And everybody knew that is prophetic. I mean, no doubt about it. But you know, they were talking about Hitler being the Antichrist then. And obviously, he wasn't. And so, uh, it's easy to look at these current events like Chernobyl and say, well, that's wormwood. Uh, but I think God gives us prophetic foreshadows that are not the fulfillment of that prophecy, but in some way a foreshadow to understand that prophecy. You know, in 2008, I remember watching the news and the stock market was falling and it was crashing. And I watched the ticker tape underneath uh, whatever network I was on. I admit it, probably Fox. And uh, might have been CNN. You know, I try to, you know, they all have their own spin. But I remember watching the ticker tape come across at the bottom. The stock market is falling. And, uh, you know, I was watching Asian markets are crashing. European markets are crashing. South American markets crashing. I thought, this is how it's going to happen. And the Bible describes this type of scenario. There's going to be a worldwide economic collapse which creates the geopolitical scene perfectly for a political figure, this Antichrist, to emerge, a dictator, a world dictator. I mean, think about it historically. Again, you want to understand prophecy, got to know a little about history. Historically, when two dictators come to power, historically, they only come to power in times of economic cataclysm when people are hungry and there's poverty. Whether you talk about Napoleon... How did Napoleon uh, rise to power as dictator of France? It was after what? The French Revolution. The country had been decimated by war. Famine, pestilence, people were hungry. Uh, you think about even Hitler. More recently, what happened? World War I set up economic sanctions against Germany. 
The German mark was worth nothing. People were literally wheeling wheelbarrows full of German marks into the downtown market of Berlin to buy a loaf of bread. The mark was worth nothing. And out of that just absolute destitution economically, that is when dictators emerge. Now, you can imagine what's going to happen with the rapture of the church, the collapse of the U.S. as we know it. What's holding up the world economy now? A strong U.S. economy, a strong U.S. dollar is what currently every other currency is attached to. When the strength of the dollar declines, all other currencies decline. When it hiccups in New York, it belches in Tokyo. We already have a world economy. And all of a sudden what happens, chain reaction, just like in 08. And the markets begin to crash. And what happens then is the perfect political situation for a dictator to emerge, to bring the nations together. So no, is Chernobyl the fulfillment of that prophecy? I don't think even remotely. But in some way, it pictures what can happen when just a little nuclear waste uh, from one nuclear place, one nuclear plant, and that area has not been inhabited since, we're talking over 30 years. It's uninhabitable. They don't let anybody near there. Now just imagine that little snapshot of the possibilities, and you begin to see uh, what will happen then in the tribulation when it will be worldwide and not just that, that one little region of Russia yeah, come back up here to Margie before she forgets her question. <laughs> As I recall, once, if you refuse Christ and you know about Jesus and you refuse, then you will not get another chance. So if you're in that group and still living, is there any point to not taking the mark? You're going to die anyway. So if you're, if you're in the group that has, you rejected Jesus ahead of time, you knew the gospel, rejected the gospel. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Because you had the truth but held the truth in unrighteousness, God will send you strong delusion. What does it say? You will believe a lie so that you will be damned. You won't be able to come to Christ. Now, we saw last time millions around the world will come to Christ. Those that didn't have the gospel at a time will have the opportunity then. Millions will receive the true and living Christ. They will reject the Antichrist. Many of them will be martyred for their faith. But let's assume you're not in that group. You had the truth. You rejected the truth. Or maybe you hear the truth, but you still follow the Antichrist. Here's what I'm convinced. Nobody's going to think at the time, yes, I'm going to take the mark of the beast and sell my soul to the devil. It's not how it's going to happen. It's going to make perfect sense. Their minds are already sent strong delusion. And uh, it's not going to be take the mark of the beast and sell your soul to the devil. It's going to be take this mark, this technology, this microchip. It's going to make our borders more secure. Nobody's going to be able to steal your identity. We're now all citizens of one global united nation. And not only that, it's going to have all of your banking on there. So all of a sudden, you just scan your hand and there it is. That's going to be kind of... How it's sold. It's going to make a lot of sense to people. And uh, the reality is, um, you know, you pledge your allegiance as a citizen of the United States. This is going to be pledging your allegiance as a citizen of this new global type society. And so that when you refuse to, 
you'll be seen as a traitor. You're, you're an enemy of the state. This is going to be like in the early days of Christianity. Remember, I've said it's a revived Roman Empire is what the God prophesies and promises geopolitically a revival of the old Roman Empire. Where, why were those early Christians persecuted? It was not because they worshiped Jesus. It was because they would not worship Caesar. Okay? The Romans were perfectly content to let conquered people continue to worship whatever gods they wanted. What made the Jews and Christians unique is they believed in monotheism. The Romans believed in multiple gods. You want to add your god to our gods, no problem. But when you say you won't worship our god, specifically Caesar, now you're an enemy of the state. That is treason. They were not really persecuted religiously as much as they were persecuted politically because they would not worship Caesar. They were seen as uh, traitors to Rome. And that's what's going to happen here as we see a revived Roman Caesar, this political figure, this antichrist figure, who will have a power base militarily and economically around the same region geographically as the old Roman Empire. Okay, it's going to be his power base. And he will persecute those future tribulation saints for the same reason those first century saints of God as followers of the Son of God were persecuted when they don't take the mark. In the same way those early Christians would not bow to the name of Caesar and take a pinch of incense at the altar of Caesar and say, Hail Caesar, those tribulation saints of God will not take the mark and hail this man as some type of Messiah because they know who the true Messiah is. Yeah, in the back, Jimmy, and then we'll come up here, okay? When the angel takes all the prayers to uh, to God, he's going to answer them, right? Does that mean he's going to answer them twice? You know, he... Um you know, the implication, I think, Jimmy, is for all those thousands and thousands and multiplied thousands and thousands of prayers uh, from the tens and thousands and multiplied thousands of believers down through the last 2,000 years, the implication is God has heard them all. He has kept them all. And every single time you've ever thought, God didn't hear and God didn't care, God heard and God cared, there's coming a day that he's going to answer every single one of them. And I think specifically, though, we're talking about the Lord's Prayer. I don't know that specifically we're talking, you know, you know, Lord, please save my, um, my Aunt Mabel's cat who went to the vet this week. And I'm not, I'm not sure we're talking about that. But I think more specifically we're talking about the Lord's Prayer. And this has been prayed over and over again. Our Father, heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God in our hearts. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is the rule of God on the earth. Currently, the kingdom of God is in our hearts of the believers. Let's face it, the kingdom of God is not on the earth, or we wouldn't be living in a society that's in a state of complete moral anarchy. Uh, we wouldn't be living in a state of society where 19-year-olds walk into schools and blow away 17 of their peers, right? That, that just, that's, that's not the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God yet on the earth. But there's coming a day when the king returns. Currently, that kingdom exists spiritually in the hearts of believers, but there's coming a day that thy kingdom will come, thy will will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. And God answers that prayer once and for all when the rule of God comes to earth. It's going to be a theocracy for a thousand years. Yep, not going to be a democracy. It's going to be a theocracy. Jesus is going to reign literally on the earth for a thousand years in Jerusalem on a throne in that rebuilt temple. And he's going to rule and reign, it says, with a rod of righteousness. He's going to be a benevolent dictator. But that rod, guess what that rod is? The Old Testament kings, they all had a rod, a scepter. And that scepter was the symbol of authority. You remember Esther? Uh, in, the, in the book of Esther, I can't come before the king unless I'm called. And if I come, it's a capital offense. And unless he holds out the scepter, I mean, I could be executed instantly. Well, Jesus is going to have a scepter, that rod of iron. He's going to wield it and reign with it. And an absolutely righteous, unlike any other dictatorship before it, which was unrighteous. Uh, Jesus is going to wield it righteously, that rod of justice and judgment perfectly. And you can imagine why it's going to be a perfect society. Yeah. Okay. Will the trumpets be heard here on earth whenever they are sounded? Well, that's interesting. Um, I don't personally think so, but we don't know so. So, you know, we know, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. This is the rapture of the church. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive remain shall be caught up in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be forevermore with the Lord. Now, my point is this. I think as the believer, you're going to hear that trumpet. But if you're not a believer, I don't think you're going to hear a thing. You're just going to wonder what happened. You know, on the road to, uh, to Damascus, you remember what uh, happens in Acts chapter 9? As Jesus intercepts the apostle Paul, who is still Saul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You know what all his companions around him heard? They didn't hear the voice of the Son of God. What did it say they heard? Sounded like thunder. That's all they heard, thunder. And so my point is God veils his voice so those that know him can hear him and those that don't won't. So I think to the believer, it might be an audible trumpet and you'll hear it. But for the unbeliever, they won't see it coming. God doesn't telegraph it ahead of time. But again, speculation. Because I mean, we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't say but we can just kind of connect the dots and can fill in some blanks. But it's speculation because uh, the Bible doesn't say. So there's times we just guess. We take our best guess. That's my best guess. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The 144,000 we studied a couple weeks ago that God seals, 12,000 from each tribe, that begins the tribulation revival. It begins with those 144,000 Jews. And I'm convinced they do know exactly what's going on. And as a matter of fact, that's when the light bulb will come on for many of those Jews. And it's a fulfillment, I'm convinced, of Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, where they are miraculously converted, it says, through dreams and through visions. Remember, this is a time where there is no witness of the church. There's no gospel preaching. There's no missionaries taking the gospel to the uttermost. God's going to miraculously intervene through signs and visions and dreams they're going to realize who the Messiah is. He's Jesus whom we crucified. And all of a sudden, those Old Testament passages related to the day of the Lord is going to make sense. They're going to realize we're living in the day of the Lord. 
and they're going to find a New Testament book that's, I don't think, coincidentally titled Hebrews, and they're going to go, wait a minute, that's us, we're the Hebrews. And they're going to read that, and they're going to realize, man, the lights come on, and all of a sudden they realize the old covenant and all the blood of the bulls and the goats, that was merely a picture of the new covenant and the blood of that sacrificial lamb, that Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's going to be revival in Israel. Yeah, the light bulb's going to come on. They're going to know what's happening, finally. They've fallen asleep temporarily, what Paul says. Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 11, God has not permanently put away the Jews. I've told you, there's this theology sweeping evangelicalism called replacement theology Good and godly people believe this. I just don't understand how they get there biblically. It says the church has replaced Israel. All you got to do is read Romans 10 and 11. Paul's adamant. Uh, the church hasn't replaced Israel. They've fallen asleep temporarily, he says. Why? For the salvation of the Gentiles. And we live currently in the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, 24. Jesus said, you know you're in the times of the Gentiles until when? Until... Jerusalem is no longer trampled underfoot by Gentiles. 1967, the Jews rolled back in Jerusalem for the first time in 2,000 years. A sure sign the times of the Gentiles are coming to an end. God is about to turn his attention back again to Israel. There's going to be an awakening take place spiritually. 144,000 Jews awaken to the truth, and God, it says, will graft them back in. He uses the term olive tree. The olive tree, guys, is a symbol of the spiritual life of Israel. All right, the fig tree is a symbol of the national life of Israel. Remember, Jesus cursed the fig tree. He was prophesying the death of the nation of Israel. They were going to go dormant. He cursed the fig tree so that it would never again bear fruit. Now, remember what he says in Matthew 24, learn the parable of the fig tree. When that fig tree begins to put on blooms and buds again, you know that summer is near. Even so, know that my coming is also near. What happens in 1948? That fig tree was reborn. It rebudded for the first time. A sure sign. We're living in the end times. But notice Paul doesn't use the fig tree in Romans 10 and 11 when he talks about the rebirth spiritually, not nationally of Israel. He used the olive tree. The olive tree is a picture of the spiritual life. And guess what he says? As Gentiles, non-Jews, we were the wild olive tree. And he grafted the wild olive tree into his olive tree, speaking of his spiritual family. And then he goes on and he says, how much easier will it be if I could graft the wild olive branch, how much easier will it be when I graft back in that original olive branch? There's going to be a day that the Jews awaken spiritually and once again we will be one family, Jew and Gentile, forever and ever as members of God's family as God always intended all along. Somebody else? Anybody? Yep. Hang on just a minute. James is on the way. Yes. I, I just wondered if there is a correlation with the third, you know, how he, and with the third of the angels that fell. And yeah. in all the thirds that we just listened to. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't think so. Okay, so the Bible gives us no indication to make that correlation. It's just a really good observation. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, there could be, maybe, and someday I'm convinced we're going to get to heaven, and all of a sudden we're going to have that perfect understanding, and we're going to go, wow, that was there all along. I didn't make that connection. So all, all I can say is, biblically, we can't make a clear connection between you know, a third of the earth's vegetation and earth, a third of the sea creatures. So, I mean, biblically, we can't connect those dots. Um, but uh, it's still a good observation. I like the way you think. Because that's what God does. That's exactly what God does. He is a God of patterns for a reason. He wants us to be able to track him. It's no different than if you want to uh, track where somebody's been, you look for the footprints, don't you? And uh, you can see where they've been based on the footprints they've left. Well, guess what? God leaves footprints. He wants us to see where he's been so we understand where he's going. And that's what you're doing there. You're looking for patterns in Scripture. And that's an, I really mean that. It's great, great observation. Great job. Nancy. Okay. But so speaking of patterns, too, I love uh, the ending where it says that the angel, and I think God has always the same yesterday, today, and forever. Try to tell his people what's going to happen. I call it news before it happens. Whether it was the prophets, whether it was the wrestling in the mulberry bushes when David went out to Jonathan, whether it was Jesus telling his disciples, hey, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again. That he's always tried to tell them news before it happens and stuff. And even in heaven, when we're there, God is sending the angel out to say, whoa, 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 and because we will be known as we are known, that in that word woe, I think it will make sense and we will know all that it's there, not just the word woe. Amen to that, Nancy. That's good. Yeah, not only it, just think about this. In the days of Noah, for 120 years, anybody could have repented in the days of Noah. God was going to bring worldwide judgment like he's going to again. And God told him ahead of time what was going to happen. Noah preached for 120 years repentance. You look in the book of Jude, and the apostle Jude quotes Enoch, uh, one of the, uh, uh, what we consider one of the apocryphal books that the uh, apostles considered not necessarily inspired scripture, but very much an important part of the history. And it says that Enoch prophesied and preached uh, in the days of Noah before the flood preaching repentance. Here's the point, guys. The world should not be shocked and surprised. The world just refuses to pay attention. The world refuses to hear God's gracious invitation and offer of redemption. Right? There's the problem. Listen, the proud arrogance of fallen men. And there's the problem with the fallen heart of human men. Listen, the arrogance and the pride that refuses to repent, that refuses to submit. That's always been the problem since the fall of Adam. Uh, and it always has been. I'm convinced it's just waxing worse and worse and worse, even in what was once a Christian nation in Western civilization. Yep. Well, um, I, I've been trying to imagine this situation, and I know that God can harden hearts and confuse us, but... When the 144,000 come back, come to the Lord, it's not going to be the same as when we come to the Lord. We can't wait to tell other people and try to get other people and pray for them. And then God answers prayers and, 
And then uh, kind of going along with that whole um, agony that, that puts in my heart because speaking as a mom or a grandma of people that aren't saved yet, like that's it, that's their last chance, you said, after the rapture. But I had another question about the rapture too that I didn't hear what, why the rapture may not be in the middle of the seven-year period instead of at the beginning. Because it seems like putting uh, some of this together that it could possibly come in the middle. Yeah, so um, very popular teaching is mid-trib rapture. And um, I'm open to the possibility, just so you know, I think the weight of evidence is far more on a pre-trib rapture than mid-trib rapture, but there is evidence biblically. People make a biblical argument for a mid-trib rapture. Now, I've given in a previous sermon, you can get online and click on the Revelation series on our website, and I think I just titled it The Rapture, preached it last summer. I gave our church five biblical reasons why I'm convinced uh, it is a pre-trib rapture. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that one. I don't have time to you know, rehearse the whole thing to hear. But here, here's one of the biggest reasons I'm convinced it's a pre-trib rapture, guys. Very clearly, the New Testament teaches what? The imminency of the rapture. Like, no man knows the day or the hour. Jesus said, I come as a thief in the night, right? That's the teaching of the rapture. Now, here's the deal. Any other view, mid-trib or post-trib, completely destroys what I think is the clear New Testament teaching that no one's going to know the day or the hour. And the reason I say that is this. We know, the ra- we know that the seven-year tribulation begins with the signing of that peace covenant, Daniel 9.27. It's going to be worldwide news. It's not going to get by anybody. When this antichrist, this political figure, brokers a peace treaty between Israel and her enemies, in the seven-year peace covenant... When that document is signed, whenever it is, that is what actually begins the seven-year tribulation, the countdown toward Armageddon. Now, every believer alive at the time would simply need a Bible and a calculator and a calendar to figure out exactly then when the rapture was going to happen, meaning from the day and hour that peace treaty is signed, just count forward three and a half years and you know exactly when he's coming. And all of a sudden, you no longer have the imminency of his return, like he's not coming as a thief anymore. In fact, he's told us ahead of time, exactly to the day and the hour. And so to me, that's one of the most compelling reasons why, though there is biblical reasons people get there. As I've said before, guys, I'm not going to be offended. I'll never be offended because you disagree with me. There are things that Christians can disagree on. It's okay. Um, And this is one of them, honestly. It is. But in the end, where does the weight of evidence fall? I think it's way, way over on the side of the preacher of rapture, if for no other reason than that reason right there. Because very clearly, New Testament teaches we won't know when he's coming. And if indeed it is mid-trib, then all you'd have to do is look to see when that peace treaty is signed, and then you know exactly when he's coming. Does that make sense? Yeah. What was the rest of your question, Nancy? there was any insight that you had on the 144,000 coming to the Lord, they being of the tribes of 
of Israel, right? Yeah, and so if you go to Israel today, and guys, I, was, I hope someday you'll go to the Holy Land tour with us. I mean, it changes everything. The things you'll see there, you'll never, ever be the same. Your faith will really, really change. One of the things you'll see there is a movement of Orthodox Jews. When you see them at the Wailing Wall, they are praying for two things, for the Messiah to come and for them to get to rebuild their temple. All they have left of their temple is that western wall that Herod built, Herod's temple, and that's where they are, and that's where they're praying, right? Here's the point. Orthodox Jews cannot worship apart from a temple and apart from a priesthood. But did you know there's already a movement within Orthodox Jews in Israel not only to rebuild that temple, uh, but even to reinstate the priesthood? Through DNA technology, they're already deciding who is and who isn't qualified to be a Levite. So when the time comes, and what happens in Daniel 9.27, the Antichrist, as a part of this peace treaty, allows them to rebuild their temple, which is why at the three-and-a-half-year point, he causes the sacrifices to cease. There can't be sacrifices if there's not a temple. So somewhere along the way, this temple's going to be rebuilt. And the 144,000 begin that. So what happens is they miraculously come to Christ in the same way the Apostle Paul did on the road to Damascus, miraculous conversion, like Jesus appears to them. And all of a sudden they realize their eyes are open, Jesus is our Messiah, and they begin preaching the gospel, Matthew 24 says, to all nations, and then the end comes. See, we like to misapply Matthew 24, and we say it belongs to the church. It doesn't belong to the church. It belongs specifically to the Jews. The context is the tribulation, not the church age. We're not the ones that are going to complete the mission and take the gospel to all nations. Listen, the Jews, though, beginning with 144,000, are converted. Then they go forth preaching the gospel of the kingdom to all nations, which is why at the end of Revelation 7, John saw of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation standing around the throne of God, and then the end comes. Yep. And then there, really are, there really are going to be people that didn't get raptured that might come to Christ. Nancy, there will be millions of them. Okay, well, you know how millions we had to answer people. that question no last time? Yeah, there will be millions of people. It'll be worldwide revival. See, that was chapter 7, that parenthetical chapter we talked about where God gives us this little parentheses where he's teaching us in the middle of this pandemonium, this chaos, this cataclysm, there's going to be millions coming to Christ of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation beginning with those 144,000 Jews. Now, who's coming to Christ? It will not be, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, those people who had the gospel ahead of time but willingly rejected it. And so revival will be very minimal, I'm convinced, in the Western Hemisphere, where people have heard the gospel over and over again and been inoculated against it. The revival is going to come to those places where, quite frankly, the name of Jesus in some cases has never even been heard. You realize that the, when the rapture hits, it's going to be instant news here, but in some parts of the world, there are so few true Christians, they won't even know what's happened until the next day. We're talking about places like Asia and China, throughout the Middle East and the Islamic world. And so it's going to be of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. But, but here's the point. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us it will not be those who knew the truth ahead of time. Those that knew the truth ahead of time says will be sent strong delusion. They will believe a lie because they held the truth in unrighteousness. 
And so it is sobering, Nancy. It really is. They're accountable. They're accountable for what they know. You bet. Absolutely. Hey, guys, it's a quarter tail. Love you so much. We're going to pick it right there. Pick it up right there next time. Let's let this truth change us. I mean, these 144,000 Jews that get saved, in the, they're going to be like 144,000 Apostle Pauls. We're talking living on mission. Let's let it begin right here. Amen. Jesus, help us to live on mission. I pray, God, that we would do whatever it takes to advance your kingdom. Lord, we know that time is short, that we live in a changing season. We live in a time of transition. Lord, we know that we are right on the threshold of the second coming of Christ. Your kingdom is going to come, and your will will be done. We thank you one day on earth as it is in heaven. Help us, I pray, to live that way every day. In Jesus' name, amen.